from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Our overall mission is to grow a variety of food that is adapting to the changing climate. This week on our show, we explore two approaches to sustainable agriculture, working with nature to grow food. One in Puerto Rico and one here in Indiana. We visit a kimchi stand at a farmer's market in North Carolina, and Harvest Public Media brings us stories about black farmers in Oklahoma and in Iowa, and a row crop farmer experimenting with new methods. That's all just ahead in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed is back with Earth Eats News. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. I've got a couple of stories from Harvest Public Media this week. Pork raised in the United States feeds people around the world. China, Canada, and Mexico are the biggest overseas markets, and U.S. officials and farmers are courting other countries. U.S. pork producers had great hope for 2020, in part because China was still rebuilding its swine herd after a massive disease outbreak. But a Sino-American trade war that had barely cooled suggested over-reliance on China could backfire. U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary Ted McKinney says some trade bailout money went into developing new markets. We're leaving no stone unturned. If we can sell an extra container of pork somewhere, that's an extra container of pork that came from somebody's farm or ranch, and that's what we want to do. McKinney sees promise in a pending trade deal with Kenya and says other African and Southeast Asian countries are also on his radar. He made his comments in a webinar sponsored by the Missouri-based ag policy group AgriPulse. President Trump's phase one trade agreement with China isn't meeting its targets. The agreement, signed in January, was ambitious to begin with, but the most recent data shows that by the end of September, China had only bought about half as much as what was targeted. Chad Bone is a trade expert with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He says it's very unlikely that China will ultimately meet its purchasing goals. They would have to buy a lot of aircraft in the last three months of of 2020, you know, big ticket items like that. They would have to buy a lot of soybeans. Bone says there are many reasons China's falling short, including the grounding of some Boeing planes, animal disease outbreaks, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Those stories come to us from Dana Cronin and Amy Mayer of Harvest Public Media. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
As harvest season winds down, one farmer in North Iowa is collecting data from his first year experimenting with a combination of crops and livestock. He calls it stock cropping. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer introduces a man trying to improve upon old traditions with modern technology. Zach Smith is walking through alternating strips of pasture and corn that he planted this year. Well, this is our answer for putting diversification and multiple species back on the land, and we're going to have we're going to have a four-ring circus. Was my idea of animals parading through grazing, laying their manure down. He's motivated by the need to reduce the environmental impact of conventional farming. Smith and a business partner designed and built a mobile barn that moves his livestock through a pasture area each day. We call it the Cluster Cluck 5000 is the, the model name. Goats and sheep chomp the tall sorghum Sudan grass out front. Pigs root around and doze behind. Then chickens pass through pecking and keeping the flies at bay. The roof offers shade and is angled to collect rainwater. Smith knows pasture-raised livestock on a grain farm seems old-fashioned, but he's leveraging technology to make the revival modern and practical. Webcams, solar panels, autonomous movement. You know, you could have an app on your phone and say, move the barn and hit, hit the button and Siri would make the, the barn move ahead for you. Smith's commitment to technology extends to his series of YouTube videos about the project. What is cropping up? What he said, stalkers. Zach the stock cropper being serenaded by the uh, cockle doodle doing on uh, of our roosters. He says his years touring in a band left him comfortable in front of an audience. But he's a fifth generation corn and soybean farmer with seed and chemical businesses. Still, he recognizes that change is the future. I'm part of the of the big egg machine, you know, and so it's just it's you know just like anything, it's the Titanic. It doesn't just spin on a dime. He decided to put some of his trade bailout and coronavirus relief money toward testing stock cropping. His experiment pushes multiple ideas at once. Let's start with the crops. Key cooperative agronomist Ben Hollingshead has been following Smith on social media. He says the pasture plants improve the soil. The more uh, species uh, and different types of roots that you have in that soil um, makes that soil more resilient, more, more apt to be able to hold nutrients. But Hollingshead says the rub is this. No matter how good it is for the environment and the future, any proposed change can't threaten profit. Smith knows this. That's why his second goal is to cultivate customers for his pasture-raised meat. Practical Farmers of Iowa Livestock Program Manager Megan Filbert says it's a sound idea, but the meat's going to cost more than what shoppers pay at the supermarket. You know, do the majority of Iowans care enough? Do they actually want this? And I'm not sure that's the case. This winter, Smith will evaluate soil and water quality, and he'll calculate what he expects to be a lower carbon footprint for producing meat in his system. He hopes the results will appeal to customers' values. And uh, hopefully be able to achieve that with marketing to consumers that want to, you know, have the experience of seeing their meat raised in this fashion and willing to, willing to pay for that. He estimates a farmer with 80 acres could run 30 cluster clucks and raise 450 pigs, a couple hundred sheep and goats, and 9,000 chickens. But that would require hiring livestock and marketing staff, plus taking animals to an inspected processor. It could take up to two years and $2 million to build a new slaughterhouse. But the investment would foster Smith's third goal, making rural life more viable and appealing. We're going to keep doing videos. You know, the harvest uh, has come and gone. We've still got the chickens to finish out.
For now, Smith's got corn in the bin and meat in the freezer. Most of it's sold. The 75 people who came to his September field day give him confidence stock cropping is resonating. He's filed a patent on the Cluster Cluck technology and hopes to attract even more interest as he continues sharing videos. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. We start to meet, to, to get together, to find a way to do farming together in 2015. In 2017, in May, that we made the agreements and everything, so we are just getting there. And then in September, the hurricane just came, and we received first Irma, and after two weeks, we received Maria. Marisa Reyes-Diaz is one of the founding members of Wakia. Wakia, Colectivo Agroecologico, or Agroecology Collective. Wakia means our or us in Taino language that is from our native Indians of the island. Wakia is a farming collective in Puerto Rico based around the principles of agroecology. Marisa Reyes-Diaz and Stephanie Monserrate-Torres visited the Indiana University Food Institute in 2019. We are an agroecology collective, so we are farming, trying to imitate nature and how it works. Uh, agriculture is already a really invasive way to do how we eat, but uh, in agroecology, we try to just imitate in the earth, but as well, it has to it has to have a social connection, social integrated with the agroecology project. So we knew we had to have some sort of social component to our project. So we're going to farm and the community will eventually see we're growing stuff and they'll come to us because it looks pretty, so they'll come. But after the hurricane, people didn't need that much food as help for first response. So our project kind of went towards just building community. A lot of uh, people just needed to tell their experiences uh, after the hurricane. So we just sort of went towards what felt right, basically, which it was helping the community and other communities and other farmers helping in their farms. Because we didn't have, uh, barely had three months in the farm. So now, last December, is that we really started to grow food, finally. That was Stephanie. Marisa and Stephanie took an agroecology course together, which ended up being the spark for their collective. In the workshops, we took the agroecology course. We were 30 people going together into some small plot and building it into a food garden, into a food forest. And it just seemed kind of nuts to do it alone after the workshop was done. And it's it, for us, agroecology is not just farming or the... Uh, community as well. There's a lot of social injustice that the agroecology movement uh, stands up for or is the first response as well. Marisa noted that most of the food that's being produced in Puerto Rico using sustainable agriculture is going to restaurants because that's where the money is. At Wakia, they plan to produce food for restaurants and for CSAs, but also to make the food accessible to the people living in the community close to the farm. So the idea is not just to produce food is to produce for everybody. And for us as well. We need to eat. 
So the the main industry in that area is tourism. So there's more restaurants and hotels and things like that. Yeah. More hotels, more restaurants that are not accessible for Puerto Ricans or obviously low income Puerto Ricans. That that's the majority of what we have near our farm. We're in the north part of the island. It's about 10 minutes from the beach, but it's a low income community. But it's not a low income municipality if you know like we have a lot of resorts a lot of tourism but it's not such of a paradise for Puerto Ricans who live there so we have low-income communities Uh, after the hurricane they were one of the last ones that got their light the last ones that got their streets clean the last one that got water after the hurricane and after helping with the immediate needs of the community Wakia got the word out about their collective using social media. There were organizations in the U.S. looking to offer direct assistance to everyday Puerto Ricans. And one of the brigades working with Wakia was organized by Science for the People. And they just got, went to the farm. We stayed in the farm for 10 days, and we don't have electricity or water. So we were camping, a lot of people. We were 15 people camping in the farm, so it was a lot, but we <laughs> but we did a lot. Uh, like at the end of the week, we were like, oh my God, this looks totally different from when it started. Uh, and we were able to do a festival, raise some funds, raise the awareness that we are there in the community. So the brigades have been awesome. So did you need to clear a lot of things from the land? We had to clean a lot. We had refrigerators, uh, beds, cars, you name it. We had cleaned before the hurricane, but then after the hurricane, it got, oh, oh, again, out of hand because everybody was just trying to throw everything away. I was imagining like a lot of brush and vegetation that you'd have to clear. But Also, yeah. also we have that yeah. because uh, the grass is six feet high and it's like a bambooish grass. So it's really when you try to cut it, it just the machete comes back to you. So in addition to the brigades and other volunteer groups, they hired nearby farmers with equipment to help clear the land. So you have cleared some beds or some rows now, and uh, what do you have growing at the moment? We have uh, banana, plantain, cassava, uh, beans, uh, we get some corn, papaya, uh, ginger, uh, turmeric, shallots, tomatoes, sweet pepper, I don't know how to name the gandules in English. It's like a, a bean? bean, but different. It's a very good one. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's dried and cooked. Like in rice, it's really for Christmas. It's a, we eat like arroz con gandules, yeah. rice and, and gandules. And we make the rice. It's the best part of the <laughs> Christmas thing. Yeah. What kind of seasonings? We made a sofrito that is a mix of onion, garlic, sweet pepper, uh, pepper, no one, salt, oil, cilantro, cilantro, and that's all. We just put it in a blender, blender and we have the sofrito, and we use that to cook. Yeah, we use that not only for Christmas, but that's our base. That's the base for every every dinner, yeah. Sofrito, amazing. (laughs) 
The Wakia Collective has also maintained and nurtured the connections with the surrounding community. One of the workshops that we made in the community was a compost workshop. We invite them to separate everything that is uh, trash of the fruits, yeah, organic, and we pass every Friday, we pass by the houses and we collect all this uh, organic matter that they separate to do a compost, community compost in the in the farm. Kind it's of like a competition for them too. Yeah. Like, oh, who's having more compost or something like that. And so they're eating better because they want to eat fresh foods now. They don't have that much smell from the trash in their house. They spend less in their trash bags. Yeah. And then they feel like they're part of something bigger, yeah. that they're helping the island, they're helping the reconstruction of the island. And we have some exchange with them. We give them fresh compost for their plants, or we give them some tomatoes. Like, it's a really good, it's a compost program with the community. It's really good, It's and it's going along great. Future plans for the farm include the installation of solar panels for electricity, a sustainable water source, buildings and infrastructure, and strengthening connections with the community. They also hope to find ways to make the farm sustainable financially so that the five members of the collective don't need to hold down two or three additional jobs to stay afloat. You know, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. So just things that could put you into context of what is, why is it that we're doing what we're doing and why is it so hard? So basically, we can't vote for the president. We only have our representative in Congress, and he also can't vote. He only has a voice. So... It's nothing. Stephanie also brought up the Jones Act and what it means for Puerto Ricans in terms of their dependence on the United States. Though Puerto Rico's tropical climate makes it suitable for year-round farming, the island currently imports 80% of its food, mostly from the United States. All the peasants, all the people that do agriculture in Puerto Rico, they just get out from the farms and to work in industry, and, and factories because was the industrialization moment. So we lose a connection with the land. That's why we get so big percent of uh, importations. And we are return, returning to the land. Farming in Puerto Rico, just farming, it's such a uh, resistance, it's so powerful. If we have food, we have food security and we are getting out of the system. So it has kind of all things in it. We need at least sovereignty in our food and then we can construct or build something different from the island. But we have to start with the food because it's, that's it's a freedom for us, I think. That was Marisa Reyes-Diaz and Stephanie Muzerati-Torres of Wakia Agroecological Collective. Agroecology shares many principles with permaculture farming practices. Later in the show, we visit with farmers here in Indiana working with the land to grow food in sustainable ways. Stay with us. There are fewer than 1,800 black farmers in Oklahoma, and many are working second jobs to make a living. But Oklahoma once had a thriving agricultural community. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine 
explains how things have changed and visits one farmer trying to keep his ancestor's legacy alive. Nathan Bradford Jr. is filling up buckets of feed at his home in Bristow, Oklahoma. He's about to drive to several plots of land to check on his cows. He explains the name of his business, G-Line Meats. Most of the people on this line, this, this road, it was from Georgia and that's my ancestors. As he drives to the 80 acres of land, he points out the house his grandfather used to live in. He thinks it was built in the mid-1930s, and it looks like it hasn't been touched for years. A rusted tin roof and missing wood wall panels. Probably need to take it down. You know, it's one of them things that you really don't want to get rid of. Bradford has about 400 head of cattle. He says there's a lot of work to do because the soil has been degraded after years of farming. So Bradford has been playing a game of catch-up. He's been removing trees and planting better grass for his cattle. I can't give up. i got to make this place better than what I found it. You know, um, they had what they had. They had the resources, and I've got an opportunity to make it better, and that's what my goals are, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take some time. This isn't Bradford's full-time job. He works at a nearby natural gas processing plant seven days on and seven days off. The rest of the time, he's working with the cows. That's the life of a black farmer. That's Willard Tillman. He's the executive director of the Oklahoma Black Historical Research Project. A lot of them have it in their blood. They've been doing it all their life. That's what they want to do. And a lot of times, uh, I'd have to say a good 75, 80% of all the farmers, black farmers, uh, have a job. Here in Oklahoma. That wasn't always the case. Following the Civil War, there were 50 established all-black towns and one and a half million acres of land. That's more land than anywhere else in the country at the time. But the number of black farms has decreased over the past century. Much of that is a result of discrimination. One of the ways that um, many, many of the black farmers fell behind and eventually lost land was because they could not get the long in the first place. That's Valerie Grimm, a professor at Indiana University Bloomington. She says many families like the Bradfords couldn't get loans from banks or the federal government. In fact, many black farmers won a class action lawsuit against the USDA in the 90s. Bradford's father, also named Nathan, received $50,000 as part of the settlement. But he says he would have been better off if he'd gotten loans when he was trying to farm. Oh, that, I mean, that, that made you a million that day. Oh, shoot, I'd be rich. But the elder Bradford says he would have been able to buy hundreds of acres of land for cheap. It was about $200 an acre at that time, but less. But you just couldn't get the money. Things have changed. Nathan Bradford Jr. says he's been able to get loans, even though he's had his fair share of challenges with the Farm Service Agency. He wants to be a full-time farmer by his 50th birthday, nine years from now. The next step is expanding his business by opening up a place to process meat like deer. He has a small team, working with his family and producers in the area. We, our heart is in it. When your heart is in it, and you focused at it, and you want to make it happen, these guys, we can make it happen. Nathan hopes to be open for hunting season. He says there's still a lot to do, but they'll work day and night to make it happen. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. This story is part of a series on black farmers from Harvest Public Media. We'll have the second story on black farmers in Iowa later on in the show. 
After a short break, we meet an entrepreneur with a spicy, tangy product. I'm Kate Young, and you're listening to Earth Eats. Stay with us. Starting a food business takes a lot of different kinds of work. Product development, sourcing ingredients, building a customer base, and of course, choosing a hard-to-forget name. Josephine McRobbie caught up with an entrepreneur who goes by the name The Spicy Hermit. The Durham Farmer's Market is home to a lot of eye-catching booths filled with crusty loaves of bread, plump strawberries, and pillowy heads of butter lettuces. But the spicy hermit stand is especially intriguing. Flanked by two large coolers and a display of free samples in white cardboard cups, it's as much science lab as it is produce stand. And here it goes. Crunchy. Ooh, a little spicy and hot. But it has great flavor. It has a little bit of a... How can I say? A little bit of a twang. Tangy, spicy, flavorful. It's kimchi, the Korean condiment with a history dating back to around 37 BC, is made by salting and fermenting vegetables, often using garlic, ginger, or Korean chili peppers for additional flavor. Eunice Chang is the chef behind the Spicy Hermit's kimchis. She advises market goers on which batch to try, green garlic, sweet onion, or the traditional favorite of Napa cabbage. The Napa kimchi is the spiciest, it's the hottest, but it's also our most popular. If they didn't grow up with kimchi, visitors to Eunice's booth are often curious as to how to use this little jar of preserved vegetables. It's great to up the ante of an already spicy creation like salsa or ramen, And when mixed with a fat, the sour and pungent taste of kimchi creates something entirely new and complex. Personally, I like mixing it with avocado and mixing almighty avocado toast. Avocado toast might not need a recipe, but cards at the booth include step-by-step instructions for dishes like goat cheese and kimchi ravioli or kimchi queso. Eunice's partner Brian is often involved in taste-testing these creations. So those are typically things that, like, on a Sunday afternoon, you know, after the market, we've had time to take a rest, then we'll think about what to cook on Sunday, and she'll usually think up some kind of crazy kimchi-inclusive recipe. And resting after the market is much needed. Eunice flies solo at the relaxed Wednesday market, but on the weekends, the Spicy Hermit is a busy team affair, with friends like Cheryl pitching in. I am Cheryl, and I am a kimchi cheerleader. I eat kimchi. I uh, tell everybody that kimchi spices up their life and makes everything they cook better. Eunice has fostered a community around her passion for foods. We happen to live in the same neighborhood, and I realized once we met that she was the force behind our local park's delicious but mysterious food truck rodeo. 
She slings kimchi-infused dishes at local arts and food events, and she inspires her friends to be more adventurous in their tastes. I never knew I liked kimchi until I tried Eunice's kimchi. Meredith Emmett is a neighbor of Eunice's. Eunice is deaf, and she chose to write out some of her longer answers for this piece and to have Meredith read them for her. That's why. Seeming much shorter. Eunice started making kimchi because she couldn't find any in the area that she liked. She sourced her ingredients at the downtown farmer's market. One day, a farmer asked me why I was taking copious amounts of Napa cabbage and radish, and I said I was making kimchi. His face brightened up, and he said that he loved kimchi, so I said I'd bring him a jar. Well, he finished the jar in a week, or less, he claims, and he eventually convinced me that I should sell it. She cites a number of books as inspiring the spicy hermit, like the novel Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee and Never Home Alone, biologist Rob Dunn's love letter to microbes. She also had a potent memory of her own grandmother's recipe. She's long gone now. But the only time I saw her make kimchi was when she visited us in the United States. She'd use the vegetables available to us here and then convert them to kimchi. For example, she made green cabbage and cucumber kimchi. I haven't been able to replicate it, but my green cabbage kimchi is definitely inspired by her. Foods from around North Carolina are central to the Spicy Hermit's portfolio of products. As for Southern staples like collards and sweet potato, These are vegetables that grow easily and abundantly here in the South, and there are many recipes that involve using them with spicy, slightly sour flavors. Think cider vinegar and hot sauce for collards. So the first step is finding some great core ingredients to use. And there's a very special ingredient or essence or activator. It's called hand flavor or sun mat in Korean. Every person has a unique composition of beneficial microbes on their hands. And when you make kimchi or sourdough bread, you pass on that composition. So yes, every person's kimchi is different. And yes, some people can just make things taste better. As the fermenting kimchi sits in a jar at room temperature for a week or two, the flavors of the ingredients and their texture begin to change radically. So for example, a lot of people don't like raw radishes or turnips, but when you ferment them into kimchi, they become sweeter with a tinge of sour, and it's almost like a completely different vegetable. When Eunice was starting to jar and sell her products, she needed to come up with a name, and the spicy hermit fit her mission perfectly. Korea used to be called the hermit kingdom, so I took the word hermit, and a friend suggested the adjective spicy, which can literally mean using spices. Or it could also mean sassy. Since I'm strong-minded in my opinions, particularly that of food, and I'm a bit of an introvert, the spicy hermit seemed to be a very good way to describe myself. Although I also like the mystery about it. A hermit practicing food alchemy in a cave to produce rather delicious results. That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. Find more about the Spicy Hermit at eartheats.org.
the agroecological vision that Stephanie and Marisa talked about earlier in the show is compelling and inspirational. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to visit a farm with a holistic vision founded on the principles of permaculture. Sobra Mesa Farm is located in South Central Indiana, just outside of Bloomington. The farmers, Juan Carlos Aranga and Robert Fru, had a larger vision in mind when they started their farm more than six years ago. Robert Fru shares the story. That really started with one person, and that was Lucille Bertuccio. And she was a guiding light for us in understanding the importance of land conservation and caring for wildlife and for an appreciation of of native plants. So through her, we started this journey of really recreating ourselves and deciding that, hey, we could probably do something more than what we were doing with, with instead of just a backyard habitat, why don't we create a very large piece of land that's a habitat that grows food and has animals and that we can uh, also create this sense of community around us. Well, we, we love food and community. I, I come from a Latino culture, which is very important to be connected with people. And food is one of the best things, you know. And that's why also we named the farm Sobremesa. In my culture, after you finish eating, you stay at the table and chatting, you know, gossiping, things like that. And that's like Sobremesa, that's what we call Sobremesa. So that's why we are growing all kind of food here and connected the food with the community. So we have the market here, events, we have guests coming. Also, we, we thought it would be unique. We learned them from the Amish. Is you go to their farms and they harvest for you there. And that's what we do here at the market. People come and we harvest for them. They see the produce and they can choose. I want that, a tomato. And it's a good way because the food becomes something else, not just an item. It has history love, sharing information, and you get to know that person that is eating your food. So it's, it's really great. So you haven't already harvested for the market. It's as people come, you you might just go out into the garden and pick things. Some of the things we do harvest early in the morning, but we have some chairs. So when they come here, they breathe and they wait or they come with us. So it's, it's an adventure, I would say. You need your time, and that we also they meet other people who are, you know, buying stuff from us here. It's, it's an event, I would say, too. The market's on Sunday from 11 to 6, and we open the gates at the road and put out signs and um, wait. I think that it's a a way for people also to better connect with their food because they meet the farmer, they see how it's being grown, and they see the, the entire ecology of the piece of land around the food. We wanted a central feature at the farm, and we decided since we were both into refurbishing and uh, salvaging things, 
that we would find a barn that was going to be torn down that we could rescue. So we found one up in Dyer, Indiana, and we hired a Amish crew to disassemble the barn, put it on trucks, and bring it here and reassemble it in mostly the same way that it was with a few alterations. We got together with a sound engineer from IU who suggested that we uh, remove one of the lofts in the barn that had originally been in the barn, and then to eventually create a solid surface floor, which would help with better acoustics in the barn, because our goal was to have concerts there and um, different musical events. And really to help educate people, which again, this was part of the mission that we're carrying on from Lucille, and to help people connect with a piece of land, to understand the heritage of farms in Indiana, and in the case of the barn, the importance of conservation, of preservation, of an important piece of architecture that really roots us here. Sobra Mesa also offers two lovely Airbnb spaces and they host campers, interns, and woofers, people who travel to live and learn on organic farms. And they've connected with the local elementary school in Unionville. They have a really an amazing idea for the whole school and thing, it's called Earth. And they have a garden, I mean that school is amazing. And we prepare a workshop to create a, a mound. It's a Hugo culture is the word that you use in Germany, but it's pretty much like a big rice garden using some materials you have right there on your place. And there were 60, 60-something 60 kids, and they were fantastic. Oh, we loved it. There was a seven-year-old who came to me, I could do this for the rest of my life. And that really was the best, yeah. So what, so they built the mound? We showed, so we divided all the kids in three groups. The ingredients we had was branches, paper, soil, cardboard. So they, so they all went through the whole process. They used shovels and old tools, wheelbarrows. They, I mean, they, they work incredible, yeah. I told one of them, you're hired, yeah. <laughs> because they didn't want to stop. They went on and on. They also hosted a group once called Reimagining Opera for Kids, presenting a food-themed opera in the refurbished barn for a group of students from Unionville Elementary. There's so much happening at Sober Mesa Farm. Too much, really, to cover in one episode. But we'll check back with Robert and Juan Carlos later in the show to hear about why they keep a special type of fowl on the farm. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. Stay with us. Make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast. It's the same great stories in your podcast feed. Just search for Earth Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. We love to hear from you, and it helps other people find us. Most Midwest farmers are white. 
In 1900, there were about 300 black farm families in Iowa. Only about half remained by 1970, and the numbers continued to decline for decades. Despite some recent increases, Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer explores why there are few black farmers in Iowa today. Driving along Highway 150 in Fayette County, Iowa, you see a giant propane tank painted to look like a watermelon. It's the site of a produce stand, owned and operated by one black family until the 1990s, the family of Atras Step. Everybody's got good things to say about Eddie. That's Charles Downs. He's white and bought the place from Step's daughter. Step died in 1993 at the age of 97. Conservatively, I'd say it's been here 80 years, at least, and it's probably close, maybe 100. Step's family traces roots to a small but thriving African-American farm community. Before the Civil War, a group of people of color found their way to Fayette County. Trinity Christian College history professor David Brodnack Sr. says with the assistance of a white minister, they bought their own land. These black farmers, they left their white neighbors alone and their white neighbors eventually left them alone. Brodnack says after the so-called Fayette mulattoes, many of them were of mixed race, other African Americans came to Iowa and other Midwest states. He says some 19th century black families saw owning land as a first but not final step toward economic freedom. You get yourself some land and then you send your kids to school and then you have even more economic power. So in that sense, you don't necessarily need to hold on to that land. Other scholars have posited that in the upper Midwest and Plains states, black families leveraged land for a couple of generations to catapult themselves into comfortable lives in more urban areas. But Valerie Grimm, an Indiana University professor of African-American and African diaspora studies, says that may be the case for some, but... That's not, that's not my experience in talking to black landowners at all. It was always property that, that you kept to protect your family. So there would always be a home to return to. Meanwhile, Grimm says agriculture in the 20th century threw many hurdles up for African Americans. Seed dealers who wouldn't sell to black farmers. Black land-grant universities that didn't have adequate research money. And federal farm programs that denied loans to black farmers. By the early 21st century, black farmers had won more than $2 billion in settlements from discrimination cases against the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Grimm says even more is needed, like a fund to help African-American farmers get started. It wouldn't make up for 400 years of domination, oppression, and discrimination, but certainly it would increase the percentage and of blacks involved in farming. But in Fayette County, Iowa, there's another reason for the loss of black farmers, assimilation. Jeff Shimmick identifies as white, but he's also a grandson of Addie Stepp, of that pioneering black farm family. Shimmick's generation grew up unaware of their African-American lineage. He recalls speaking with another man, one who identifies as black, who also comes from one of those early families. Well, he says some, uh, some members of the community just wanted to act as white as they could and assimilate into the whites as best they could, and he says your granddad was that way. Shimmick and his cousin Brian Stepp say no one really talked about their mixed-race background when they were growing up. Brian Stepp worked on the farm with their grandfather for about 15 years. Brian, you put $1,000 into this place every year and you'll have something when I die. <laughs> Look where I am. Yeah. <laughs> I have $1,000 every year. Even if a step descendant had kept farming, it wouldn't change the fact that in 2012 and 2017, the Census of Agriculture showed Fayette County had no self-identified black or African-American farmers. But statewide, the tiny number is growing, mostly in urban areas, and many are recent immigrants. Brodnax, the historian, says farming isn't among the current calls for black economic empowerment. 
what I haven't seen is that being addressed from a perspective of farming and land ownership, right? Not saying that no one has said that, but it definitely does not seem to be any kind of big part of the conversation in 2020. But black restaurant owners, urban gardeners, and local food activists are renewing conversations about who grows their food, all signs that African-American interest in agriculture is growing, which ultimately could bring about a new generation of black farmers in the Midwest. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a Midwest reporting collective covering food and farming stories throughout the heartland. This story is part of a series on black farmers in the Midwest. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. As promised, we're back at Sobra Mesa Farm. Juan Carlos and Robert have an integrated approach to farming. No component of the farm works in isolation. For instance, they've planted a pollinator zone near the road with native flowers attracting bees, insects, and birds. The birds keep the cabbage moth caterpillars off the broccoli and kale. Systems work together. They keep chickens for eggs, but they also contribute manure. They scratch up the soil in the garden beds and keep bugs under control. But the ones that are totally, totally out, working and making noises, it's the guineas. They also keep guinea hens. The main gift to us is they control ticks. We used to have so many, many, many here, and now we have less because of them. They wander. They can't be really contained. They, they are free spirits, I'd say. <laughs> they even go to the neighbors and we have to uh, try to bring them back here. But then do they come in at night to have shelter? We did train them to go into a coop, but essentially their food and water, for the most part, they get out on the land here as they're wandering around and, and eating a lot of ticks. Yeah, I would just think that predators would be a problem if they're out wild, but maybe they've realized that it's good to come inside. <laughs> yes, they know that, yeah. It, it, like last night, for example, I was busy emailing people about the market on Sunday, and it was already dark. They were calling, hey, come, close the door. <laughs> so after I closed the door, they were totally silent. This is the house of the guineas, and now it's time for them to come out. The guineas are black with white speckles. They're larger than chickens with almond-shaped bodies and tiny heads colored bluish white and red. They're quite striking. As we walked around the farm, I noticed the guineas in the tall grasses, stretching their necks to the tops of the stalks. And, that's, and ticks love to be on top of the grass, so... So that's what they're eating. They're not eating the seeds. Mm-mm. No. That's great. I noticed one of the birds making a lot of noise on top of a large covered bale of straw. They like to go on a high spot and tell the others that everything is fine. So after that, he will go there and another one will come here, another <laughs> spot. That's amazing. Yeah. They're really cool oh, looking. I love them, yeah. 
They're noisy, they are, but they're so fun to watch. The way they run, they play, it's like, it's like kids, oh yes. They chase each other and you think they are going to kill each other, but so they go, they're very close, so the other one, ah, so goes back, so this one goes again, hey, no, come follow me again or chase me again. It's like they could go on and on and on. <laughs> and their babies are so cute. Have you oh, seen the babies? No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> they look like a little chipmunk. So you said you don't eat the animals, but do you eat eggs? Oh, yes. Yeah. And what about the guineas? Do they lay eggs? They do. Yeah, they have a short period. They start like end of April until September. That's it. We collect the eggs and we sell them at the market. They're really rich, especially if you... Are they if smaller? They are smaller, yeah. But in comparison with a chicken egg, they have a bigger yolk. Oh, okay. Yeah, not much of the white. So for baking, yeah, they're great. Juan Carlos says the guinea eggshells are hard as a rock and light brown in color. We have photos of the guineas and a few other snapshots from Sober Mesa Farm on our website, so be sure to check it out, eartheats.org. Sober Mesa has continued growing and selling food throughout the pandemic, with a few changes to their model to keep everyone safe. Juan Carlos shares stunning photography from around the farm on Instagram. You can find them at Sober Mesa Farm. We'll have a link on our website, eartheats.org. Org. That's it for our show this week. I'm Kate Young. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Precious food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. The Earth Eats team includes Aoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.